here I was, uh, supposedly a, a um, expert on entrepreneurship, an educator, and I couldn't explain the most important phenomenon in my field. In today's episode, we listen in as NFX partner James Courier talks with Professor Tom Eisenman about why more than 75% of startups fail. Tom has been teaching entrepreneurship at Harvard Business School for over a decade and has now uncovered patterns of startup failure that we want every founder everywhere to hear. This is the NFX Podcast. Professor Tom Eisenman, it's fantastic to have you here. You are a professor at HBS and you were there when I was there. Uh, you've been there now a total of 22 years. Uh, you've focused on technology startups. And over the years, a lot of people have turned to you for studies on entrepreneurship and on network effects. Uh, this includes me and Scott Cook. Uh, your name came up in a recent NFX podcast with him. Um, and a lot of people, including you, have tried to capture why startups succeed. And now you're finishing up a book uncovering the patterns of why startups fail, which I think is a fascinating topic. And let's uh, let's talk about both of those today, both why startups fail and some network effects things. So um, thanks again for coming on. And, and Yeah, thank you for having me. What sparked you to focus on this topic of startup failure? I spent the first half of my time on the faculty at Harvard Business School studying platforms and network effects. And um, I came up for tenure about halfway through. Uh, they've got a lot of leverage over you when when you're um, facing that promotion. So they um, pointed out that I had never taught the core first year course on entrepreneurship. They said it'd be much easier to promote you if we could make the case that you were indispensable in in several ways. You know, not just an, uh, some knowledge of network effects. Um, and what could I say? But okay. And I was um, wrapping up having taught many years a course on network effects. So this is the first time I'd really taught the core of how you start a startup. I just fell in love with it. It was a fantastic change. And pretty much that's what I've been doing for the, for the last 11 years um, is focusing on startup management. But what I found when I taught the first year course, so like most everything we do at Harvard Business School, that course is a required course on entrepreneurship and it's case-based. And uh, we get feedback from the students at the end. Year after year, the students would say, hey, you told us along the way that something like three quarters of startups fail, but we just did 30 cases on these spectacular success stories. And, and uh, these founders march in and sort of spread their feathers like peacocks and, and you know everything sounds fantastic. And uh, of course, that's inspiring. But what about the other three quarters of the time? Right. Most of the HBS cases are, I was brilliant and then I won. <laughs> yep. And uh, it's fun to come back to school and, and tell the story of how all that happened. And we do that a lot. And and students can learn a lot from that, of course. So, But I took that feedback seriously and I wrote a couple of cases um, about failures. They, they happen to be um, uh, we're allowed to invest in student startups after students graduate. And I had done that. And and uh, uh, at least three quarters of my angel investments had failed. So I had plenty plenty to choose from. So I wrote a couple of cases on, on uh, failed startups that had been led by former students and taught them. I would say um, classes were pretty wobbly. It was very hard for the students to figure out what happened and why. Some students were, um, as is often the case for MBAs, really good at analyzing by looking in the rearview mirror. Well, isn't it obvious that they didn't do this or that? And other students, a little more thoughtful, would say, yeah, but some some really smart investors put money behind this idea. And if it's a terrible idea, that doesn't happen. So there were a lot, there were obviously a lot of contributing factors. It was hard to understand which, if any, were decisive. The students were really debating. We couldn't tell if it was death by a thousand cuts. There were a lot of things going on, or were some of the factors more central than others? So here I was, uh, supposedly a, a um, expert on entrepreneurship, an educator, and I couldn't explain the most important phenomenon in my field. So that was a little sobering. The most important phenomenon being the fact that seventy-five percent of startups fail. Yeah, this is this is it. This this is this is central, and. Right. Uh, and the other thing that was going on then, I had um, recently discovered the lean startup ideas. I'd met Steve Blank and Eric Reese. This is 2009 or 10 before the before they got a lot of momentum and, and absorbed all that and, and thought it was really powerful and was figuring out ways to bring it into the classroom at Harvard Business School. But when I matched those ideas and, and, and methods to what I was seeing in these cases, at least one of the cases that I wrote, they were textbook, pitch-perfect application of, of the early part of Lean Startup, minimum viable product tests and so forth. Right. And they still failed. Yeah. So that they'd, they'd 
found a great opportunity. They validated demand. They'd done everything they're supposed to do, and yet they still failed. So, so that made me wonder if the playbook that I was starting to teach was incomplete. And so, so next step was okay. Well, what other people have to say about this? So I tracked down everything that practitioners had had ever written. Uh, as 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 you'll attest, a lot of venture capitalists are happy to explain why some startups fail and 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 others succeed. And there was some academic work. It was not much and pretty thin. And a lot of what I read both practitioner and academic was, I would describe as oversimplified, read a lot about horse and jockey. And uh, I, know, I know you're a fan of psychology. So you know, it turns out that humans have a penchant to oversimplify. We take complicated things and, you know, the team failed in the um, in, in August, September home stretch because the star pitcher tore a hamstring or the presidential campaign failed because uh, the candidate ignored a swing state. Usually there's much, much more going on than than just those single simple causes. And, and the other um, psychological phenomenon I, I saw all over the place, um, psychologists have a name for something they call the fundamental attribution error. Is basically when something goes wrong, um, if it happened to somebody else, we're always inclined to blame dispositional factors. Um, that the, uh, the, the individual wasn't very talented or they didn't work very hard. And if it happens to us, we blame the situation. The structural problems. Yeah. The jerk cut me off in his BMW. He's a self-centered. Um, I cut somebody off and there's a blind spot that you know I've been trying to figure out what to do about it. As, as you've dug into this topic, the research has been a little bit thwarted by doing interviews with people who will give you fundamental attribution errors, both in the simplification and in the attribution errors. So that, that makes it hard for you to sort of pick through why things have failed. Yeah, and that's that's where I realized a lot of people had done the academic work in particular. They were just simple surveys. They would ask people like, "What are the top five reasons why startups fail?" And you know, guess what? If you're talking to VCs, they say, "Well, weak team." If you're talking to founder, they say, eh, "You know, the market moved away from us in unexpected ways." And what I learned and realized was the case method, the the approach we actually use at Harvard Business School. Because when a case is well done, you've come at the problem from a lot of different directions and talked to a lot of different people. It actually was pretty good at, at triangulating what was going on in a, in a failure situation. So I talked to the founder, of course, but other team members and investors look at other similar companies in the space and so forth. And when you surround the problem that way, you'll, you'll get some attribution errors, of course, but, but then you can make up your own mind about what's really going on. So the cases in the book I'm writing, the research I'm doing, the case studies have ended up actually being super important. Right. Having having run four of these startups and invested in another hundred myself, I, I, I find there's this balance between playing to win and then playing not to lose. And a lot of uh, companies need to what they're doing at any one time, because if, if you don't pay attention to these failure modes, then you're going to end up uh, failing. Um, and, the, you know, it, it's also the case that with these startups, it seems as if 20 things often have to go right. Uh, in order, you know, you have to flip heads 20 times in a row in order for your startup to succeed in the end. And so as you, as you go back and look at the, at the, uh, failure modes, there's so many triggers that could trigger failure, whereas everything has to add up to go right. Yep. And, um, uh, Paul Graham, in one of his essays, he, he worked this this very theme uh, and basically said, um, I'm going to tell you reasons why startups fail. So it's a great list, as a matter of fact, said, because it's easier for you to remember the things not to do uh, than figure out all the things you have to do. You'll, you'll remember what not to do more easily than figuring out all the things you have to do. And, and what you have to do is different in every age and every company and every market. It, it might be really different. Mm hmm. Very interesting. So do you actually have now, um, you've been doing this now for what, two, three years, you've been looking at this in a systematic way. Do you actually have a handle on why the vast majority of 75% of startups fail, particularly for early stage companies? You know, most of our listeners are early stage, but so I'd love to start there. So um, I get to be an academic. Um, we, we like to define things. So one of the first things you have to do if you're studying entrepreneurial failure, you have to define who's an entrepreneur. And I won't go there, but it won't surprise you to hear that people actually disagree about what is entrepreneurship. Um, some people think it's anybody who runs a small business is an entrepreneur, or anybody who owns a company. And of course, you have to also have to define failure. So um, that came home. Um, I taught a course on entrepreneurial failure this past fall at Harvard Business School, and we 
did a case on Jibo, the social robot um, out of the MIT Media Lab, sort of a, a robot that could actually strike up a conversation with you um, and move and dance and stuff. It was really a remarkable product. It um, failed. It, they lost $61 million. But the question is from whose perspective? So, you know, failure, is it from the founder's perspective? If the founder's goal was to build an amazing product and, and that some people would love, which they did with Jibo, and, and sort of prove, in this case, the uh, the founder was Cynthia Brazil, who's the pioneer of social robotics. She wanted to prove that people wanted a social robot in their home, and she did. From society's perspective, that venture didn't work, but but the next generation of social robots are out there working with autistic kids and the elderly and so forth. Investor's perspective, $61 million gone. And then uh, when you look at failure, you also ask questions about what outcomes. So does a company literally have to go out of business? Not every company um, fails, of course. So it's not a, a, um, uh, an endearing term, but um, a, a lot of investors will talk about zombies, sort of companies in their portfolio that they know will never yield a return to the investor, uh, but they're making enough money to keep going. So is that a failure? Uh, does something have to go bankrupt? I settled for the project on on a definition of failure, which I think will ring true to most venture capitalists, which is early investors did not and never will make money. So that that was the definition of failure. So what we're talking about is is how we define failure, um, and you've defined it narrowly as if the early investors haven't and will never make money, and that's a, yeah. a convenient way to describe it that gives us a hard line in the sand to then define the problem and then talk about it. Makes sense. Yeah, and then uh, to your question of, of do I have a framework, that leads you in the direction of, okay, why? And uh, there's an easy answer, uh, proximate cause of death. Um, you know, like if you're a forensic investigator, loss of blood, right? Um, the company <laughs> ran out of money trying to find uh, a good opportunity and couldn't raise more. So loss of blood. Why? Well, a gunshot wound. Okay. Why? What's going on? Was it self-inflicted? Was it a jealous spouse? Um, so you really, it's it's like Toyota production system, five whys. When there's a problem in the factory, you just have to keep asking why. And that doesn't lend itself to a single simple explanation for why startups fail. So, so you know, some, some startups um, uh, do not find the great opportunity. Some don't have a great team. Um, bad market, bad founder. There is a temptation, I think, for everybody, for academics in particular, to look for one theory that stretches across lots of situations. I think the my, my colleague, the late Clay Christensen, um, was was that kind of scholar. He everywhere he looked, he saw disruptive technology and sort of had the hammer, and you could sort of bash down on any problem. Um, looked like a nail. Um, I, the the, the um, the the failure the startup failure question really doesn't lend itself to that way of thinking so uh, no single cause but there are patterns and um, and, and I saw some um, patterns repeated with early early stage failures um, so I don't I wouldn't say I have a framework um, or at least not a newly invented one when we teach MBAs at Harvard Business School how to diagnose um, the prospects for an early stage startup we use a framework we call Diamond and Square. Uh, there's a diamond that represents the opportunity and, and the four corners of the diamond, if you will, um, are, um, it's, it's, it's a mnemonic, mnemonic device to help people remember. So the corners, customer value proposition, the uh, go-to-market strategy, technology and operations. So how are you going to build the thing and, and, and deliver it? And then the cash flow formula. And then surrounding the diamond is a square, which represents the different folks who have to contribute resources, the founders themselves, the rest of the team, outside investors and strategic partners. And, and so uh, we teach the students to ask, um, uh, how, does, how does the opportunity look? How do the resources look? And are they, are they in dynamic alignment? Um, do you have the right resources in the right quantities uh, to, to actually pursue this opportunity? And that's... Um, that, that's where the f exploration of early stage failure gets really interesting because what I found were um, some teams that had mobilized a great set of resources, strong founders, great team, supportive investors, um, but that team never managed to find an opportunity, a good opportunity. Uh, and, uh, and then at the opposite end, I found teams that really had, uh, often through lean startup techniques, identified a great opportunity and validated demand for a solution, but they weren't able to mobilize the resources to capture it. So, so those were uh, those are two of the failure patterns that I saw. 
um, mm. called one a false start um, and the other bad bedfellows. And mm. We'll talk a little bit more about those. And then there's a third pattern, um, which is false positive. You get, you get off to a, a, a start with early adopters uh, and then it turns out that mainstream demand um, that doesn't share the same needs and, and uh, you've, you've actually mobilized the wrong resources to pursue the mainstream market. Hmm. Got it. And so these, these three sort of patterns are the, the big bulky patterns that stand out and within them, there must be lots of different flavors. Yeah, exactly. Um, the false start is a, um, is a, is a difficult and a tricky one. So, I mean, what I found in, in the, um, you may know Sunil Nagaraj, he's a um, HBS alum, um, started before he became a venture capitalist. You know, he has his own seed fund, Ubiquity Ventures, uh, and worked at Bessemer before that for many years. But uh, straight out of business school, he launched an online dating site called Triangulate. And um, Sunil was an engineer, like a lot of engineers, um, is great at building things, loved to build things. And so he dove headfirst into, into launching Triangulate. Uh, without really studying the market, without um, getting a good sense for customer needs, without running what we would think of today as as good minimum viable product tests, and the first version of the product was um, was off target, um, and he spent several months building it and launching it before he figured that out. He had a fantastic team; they were really agile and could iterate and build new things fast. So. He went through a couple of pivots, but the point is, is he'd only raised $750,000 and he, he only had time for a few pivots. Um, Eric Ries actually in, in his book defines uh, runway as not the number of months of cash you've got left before you exhaust your balance, but rather how many pivots can you complete before you sure. exhaust your cash balance? Sure, that makes a ton of sense. And, uh, and the false start is essentially you, you get going too fast and um, and uh, you you waste a pivot essentially, and and so you have less less capital available, and you can try fewer things. That's that's what happened to Sunil and Triangulate. It's very understandable, right? Entrepreneurs have a bias for action; they love to build. We're told to to launch early and often. There's actually a lot of the rhetoric of of lean startup. I would say. Um, uh, pushes entrepreneurs in that direction. And it, it no, really- I agree. I would agree. And another another nuance to that that I notice in working with with myself and with other people in this space is that, you know, how much how much belief do you need in order to pursue an idea at a hundred percent? And if someone ha- needs to have a lot of belief before they'll really go at something, that gets them so that they often waste a pivot or two because. It takes them a long time to get revved up and a long time to get revved off of the idea. They get too attached to it. Whereas a lot of the more facile founders, the people with the personalities that really allow for the lean methodology to work better are people who can wake up every day, go 100% at their goal of that day. And then immediately when they get the data that it's not working, they can move on to the next idea and then the next day get up with 100%. But a lot of people I find need to to have a lot more uh, belief before they can get revved up and that that causes them to go slowly. Yeah, no, that, that point um, echoes an important theme in the book um, about founders and storytelling and reality distortion fields. So that's, that's a term um, originally from um, the, the 1960s Star, Star uh, Trek episodes, but co-opted to describe Steve Jobs and the, his ability to mesmerize people and get them to sort of see his dream and work 90 hour weeks for months and months on end and, and, um, and, and help him put a dent in the universe. And when a founder um, invests that kind of ego in, in selling the concept, um, it does make it hard to be flexible in the way you just described. So, so I, think, I think there are two extremes. You described um, somebody who was ambivalent and needed a lot of validation. And I think that's very much true. But the other extreme is somebody who's too headstrong and stubborn and just sort of sees a future and is, is less willing to, to depart from that. So, yeah. so both, both extremes can be dangerous. Unless, unless the stubborn person just happens to be right with their first yeah. guess, <laughs> which is where we get a lot of the, you know, the, the Decacorns and other companies. That, exactly. Uh, you know, yeah. Um, Federal Express um, uh, 40 or 50 years ago was in the 1970s was uh, exactly that. Fred Smith was sure that the world needed a hub and spoke way to move packages around. And it then was the biggest venture capital 
launch in history and uh, lots of people thought he was crazy and um, he was as headstrong as they come. Yep. He just happened to be right. <laughs> Got it. So these are some of the, these are some of the frameworks for these early stage companies, or this is a, a way of looking at some of the things you've also mentioned the, uh, the failure of false positives, right? So seduced by strong results with early adopters and then it doesn't yeah, hold with the mainstream companies. What happens there? Um, if, you, if you create a product, that's perfectly suited to the early adopters, it often won't be the right product for the mainstream. So um, the uh, um, example of that in the book, uh, fab.com, e-commerce company, started off um, with a really um, highly curated set of, of funky, distinctive products that were um, sold through flash sales. So they put forward um, a chandelier made out of champagne glasses, you know, a rhinestone encrusted motorcycle helmet, things like that. And um, the early adopters were crazy about this stuff, this sort of very distinctive vision of design that, that the fab founders had and, um, and um, uh, bought a lot and referred their friends. So it took off on social media and the first cohorts that fab um, recruited were just fantastic. You know, some of the best that e-commerce has ever seen. And so the repeat uh, purchase rate was high and the average sales yep. price was high and they would take this deck to the venture capitalist and they would say, I've never seen anything this great. Uh, it was there in Philadelphia and they raised what, $350 million or something. Yep, exactly. And um, DC's pumped a lot of money in and, um, and the expectation was that they could go, go, go. Well, the, the next generation, of, of customers, the next cohorts weren't nearly as excited. They didn't repurchase. The first cohorts um, came through social media referrals. So the cost of customer acquisition was zero for them. Uh, you had to buy the next cohorts. So you had this LTV, lifetime value of a customer CAC, customer acquisition cost squeeze, where the customers became less valuable um, because they weren't repurchasing and they became much more costly to acquire. And um, and so they burned through a ton of capital, um, and mo mostly because the mainstream market uh, didn't share the taste of the early adopters. Talk to me about the aggregating resources and the catch-22 around that. So, so um, um, I, you folks are all about network effects, so you're very familiar with a catch-22. Um, for the listeners, uh, in, in case they uh, should read the book, it's an amazing book, um, but a catch-22 is a logical impasse that takes the form, um, can't have A without B and can't have B without A. So you can't get a job without experience and you can't get experience without a job. Um, network effects on, in two-sided markets have that flavor, right? Side A won't come on board unless side B is there and vice versa. And so the catch-22 with an early stage startup is you can't get resource providers to commit. And by that, I mean um, the rest of the team um, strategic partners and uh, crucially outside investors until you've resolved some risk. They're, they're taking a risk by lending their time, their money to you. Um, and you can't reduce risk until you've actually mobilized some resources. I mean, you can talk about it, um, but, but uh, people will be looking for more validation and more proof. So the catch 22, you can't get resources without reducing risk. You can't reduce risk until you get started and to get started, you need resources. Right. And, the, found, the founder kind of has to fake it until she makes it. Uh, that's part of it. And, and I would say that's one of four tactics. So um, when we talk about this um, at school, uh, we talk about storytelling um, and, and I think fake it till you make it is, is that. But in, in general, we're looking for ways to um, either mitigate the risk, uh, reduce it in some way, or reduce the resource requirements. If we can do one of those two things, we've, we've helped with a catch-22. So um, the four tactics, resolve risk, defer it, shift it to another party, or get people to ignore it. Storytelling, fake it till you make it, is, um, is basically a way to get people to ignore the risk because you've um, you faked them out, essentially. You've, or you've dazzled, in the case of reality distortion field style storytelling, you've dazzled them. Um, partnering is another thing entrepreneurs always do, right? They don't have resources. So let's go to somebody who's resource rich and borrow their resources and um, we'll shift the risk to them. Um, we have to persuade them that it's worth their while. 
staging, of course, um, you know, when new ventures get funded inside big companies, they don't come with seed series A, series B. It's just next year's money. You know, here's a big lump of capital. Um, but VCs will stage, which essentially defers the risk, right? Until you've met some milestone. Now, if you haven't met the milestone, we may not give you series B. And then uh, lastly, lean testing is uh, a way to resolve the risk before, cheaply um, and, and, and still um, in a rigorous way uh, before you have to commit too much in the way of resources. So those are the four ways you get around it. Um, each of them has a dark side and, and, uh, and you see some of that in these failure stories. So uh, the dark side of lean testing is people think they're doing it, but they skip the upfront phase of, of essentially customer discovery. They go right to the building, you know, let's, let's build and put it in, put a product in customers' hands and then iterate as fast as we can. But they've skipped that uh, first few weeks or maybe even a couple of months of, of really interviewing customers and understanding their need and doing ethnography and so forth. Um, staging can go bad when you pick the wrong investors. Um, partnering goes bad a lot, um, basically, because big players um, are hard to negotiate with. It. It's hard to align your interests with theirs, um, if you can get their attention at all. And then the, the risk with um, storytelling, reality distortion field, and so forth, is that the, um, the field, the reality distortion field, folds back on itself. And, and the, uh, the, the founder um, is persuaded of the, of the truth of what they're doing and doesn't hear the universe saying this idea is really isn't working. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, you mentioned the dark side, and, and I, I don't think people are very comfortable talking about that. I think that you look at the percentage of, of traffic that was coming from the sort of uh, hookup area on Craigslist, or um, there, there's a lot of sort of darkness of, of, that's driving the early stage of some of the companies we know and love that gets cleaned up later. Mm -hmm. And those, those, you know, I, I know that uh, YouTube had to pay uh, big copyright infringement uh, payoffs after they were acquired by Google because they had been infringing on copyright in order yeah. to get going. And, and uh, I, it reminds me a little bit of Jean Valjean from Les Mis, right? Who, <laughs> who does something wrong. Right? He, he steals the silver candlesticks. And if, if the vicar decides to rat on him, he's going to jail and will die in prison in the next year. And he gets, he gets a pass. And that lets him jumpstart his startup. Jumpstart, but there was a dark side to Jean Valjean beginning. Um, and then we as, as the audience have to decide, do we forgive them for that or not? I think the social network, that movie, shows yeah. the dark side of the beginning of Facebook. And many of these companies have these, these dark sides to them as they, they do something unusual. They do something out of the norm. You know, um, whether it's Airbnb or Uber or Lyft or Lime or, or Bird, you know, sort of looking at the gray area of, of what local states and, and cities have as their ordinances and, yeah. and pushing those boundaries and getting cease and desists. And, you know, it's, um, there's, a, there's a tussle on the boundary that if you put a bright light on it, it really doesn't look good. Yeah, um, better to ask for forgiveness than permission um, when it comes to the, the, all of these ventures that are have got ambiguous legal standing. And then uh, just the general problem that you point out of, um, of overstating um, maybe in the extreme misrepresenting the progress you've made um, when, when, when you're selling the concept. to investors. Exactly. Exactly. And there's this, there's this game between the venture people and the founders. And I was a founder for 20 years before I became a venture guy two and a half years ago. But, you know, now that I'm sitting on the other side, I can see this game where we're trying to penetrate the exaggerations of the founders and the founders need to exaggerate in order to get the confidence ball rolling. Uh, and in order to attract resources into their company. And so they, there's this, there's this um, culturally permitted boundary that if you're not in the network and in the system, understanding where that boundary is, it's often hard, easy for founders to cross the line into flat out misrepresentation yeah. Um, yeah. versus what, you know, the community of, of investors and whatnot has come to understand as general um, exaggeration. I remember working at Battery Ventures as an associate in the 90s and we would make an investment and it was my job to do a lot of the due diligence on the company and we would make the investment. And at the first board meeting, we would always be surprised at how much worse things were than we thought before we made the investment. Always, no matter how many people, no matter how many calls we made, no matter how many spreadsheets we looked at, things were always exaggerated. Things were always hidden. And so there's this cat and mouse game between the investors and the founders now. And 
And uh, th this is the dark side of, of being on the cutting edge and trying to aggregate resources. This is the yeah. dark side of the founders trying to solve this catch-22. It, it's, um, it's, it's out there. I, I wish I could say that we at Harvard Business School have figured out how to teach this um, to MBAs. We, we're acutely aware of the need to do that. Um, there is a, a, essentially a business ethics course that all the MBAs take. But we've been, in, in, in my unit, wrestling with the question of whether entrepreneurship is somehow different, right? Are these just business ethics problems that um, you would approach the same way um, as Johnson & Johnson sort of figuring out what to do with all the tainted Tylenol bottles, you know, or, or is, this, um, is this different? And so a lot of smart folks, um, my counterpart at Stanford Engineering, Tom Byers, has um, put a big push on to get entrepreneurship educators to think about ways to, to, um, to teach the next generation of founders how to approach these questions responsibly. Um, yeah. we're, we're getting there. And when the system, when the system is you know, rewarding the people who are the most aggressive, like in the Uber versus Lyft situation, it's hard to guide founders in a, in a really clean way. One, one thing I've heard is, and I used myself with the founders I work with is just don't do anything you don't want on the cover of the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, um, that comes up in class discussions. Um, you know, people will draw a line between outright lying and, you know, the, where it gets gray and tricky is if they don't ask you, um, do you have an obligation to tell them, right? Um, That's right. We're about to lose a big customer, and um, if you asked me, I know you'd want to know the answer to this, but you haven't asked me yet, so can I just sit here and, and let it go? Um, what's my ethical responsibility? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough, and then, you know, the founders will say, well, you know, they're sophisticated investors. They should know to ask the right questions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm reminded of a – but this is true in all of life, not just in startups. I know that my neighbor down in Duxbury, uh, you know um, – we had some friends try to do a, a building project and they were, they were declined. And then another guy bought the pieces of land and then he got the building project done. And, and the first guy goes and asks the little town, why did he get to do it? And he said, well, you didn't know what, you didn't know what questions to ask. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, I mean, spending time in the startup environment and learning the, the, uh, the exact lines of these things, I think uh, benefits everybody. It's why, yep. why network effects are even powerful within the network of people building startups because you have to know all these little things. Uh, so is there anything that stands out as the most surprising thing you learned about startup failure at the early stage? Is there, is there one thing that you're like, gee, I hadn't expected that? Yeah. So the big surprise was the early adopter challenge. Um, and I, I knew um, it, when most of us who've um, been in this business for a long time have read Jeffrey Moore's Crossing the Chasm book. And that book puts a spotlight on the difference between early adopters and, and mainstream customers. So, and I think I, I knew about it conceptually, but to see how hard it was for, for early stage founders um, to deal with this question of, do you build a product for the early adopters? Do you build a product for the mainstream? And um, how do you bridge from one to the other? Um, and the mistakes you could make if you get that wrong and, and how it can tank a company. Um, that was eye-opening. Hmm. That's interesting. That was very interesting. And what's the difference between the early stage and the late stage startup failure? Oh, well, I mean, the big difference is when a late stage startup fails, it leaves a giant steaming crater in the landscape, right? <laughs> hundreds of millions of dollars and hundreds of employees. And, uh, and we read about it, like these early stage things fail and you know about it if you've invested in it, um, but uh, they don't quite have the impact. So um, the late stage failures are, um, they could put your hair on end, um, some of them. Um, now you've made the point maybe that the failure rate of late stage is almost equal to the failure rate of early stage or is that, am I Yeah, that's fair. Um, if, if you use the definition we did before, which is investors didn't make money, um, then what happens with a lot of late stage startups is they've got momentum. The Series C investor buys in at a high share price and the thing goes sideways. Um, and it doesn't necessarily fail, but um, uh, there's um, a down round or, or even an up round, but a lot more capital comes in higher in the liquidation, you know, at a different place in the liquidation stack. And if the thing is sold, um, series C, um, you know, might make some money, but it isn't going to be the, 
five or ten times they were hoping for. So and 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 often they may lose money. So so if that's the metric, sort of um, not getting all your money back, then then seventy five percent is indeed the number. That's incredible, Tom. That that's super surprising to me, but I guess it makes sense because what we're seeing is that the capital markets are kind of efficient. Meaning yeah. if there was one class of or one investing stage that was far outperforming the others, then everyone would be doing it. I like that explanation. Never thought of it that way, but I agree completely. Hmm. Okay. And so what, what are some of the differences with late stage? One is that it's a much bigger crater. Many more people are affected. We hear about it in the press. You, you have this great phrase. It's, it's a cascading miracles. Can you walk me through that? Yeah. So that's just one of um, three failure patterns that I'm looking at late stage. Um, that one, I, I love the expression. It actually came, you'll remember who John Malone is, um, yeah. the uh, entrepreneur who built um, TCI, Telecommunications Inc., the biggest U.S. cable company. He got it from a mentor of his, the phrase. And uh, it just basically, it's, you, you were making this point early um, in the podcast that um, it's often true that many things have to go right. And if any one of them doesn't, the venture fails, right? It's, it's a math equation where you multiply a bunch of, of, of um, outcomes. And if any of them goes to zero, the whole expression goes to zero. And um, you use the, you use, use 20 coin flips. If you just take five coin flips. So if there are five things that have to go right yeah. and there's 50, 50 odds, the chance that you're going to come up heads five times in a row is 3%. It's like spinning a roulette wheel. Um, yeah. and hoping you land on 31 or whatever. Mm. And, and so that's the problem. Um, and, and where you see this in particular, um, I, I reserve the, the expression for audaciously bold startups where there's this um, really ambitious innovation plan. Um, and uh, often a, a founder um, who can sell that um, because of the scope of innovation, it's going to take a, a long, long time to develop the product. Um, because of the nature of these businesses, you often have network effects in the background or high switching costs, attributes that are going to cause you to want to go fast once you actually do launch. Mm. And so there's a scaling imperative. There's a long development cycle. Uh, there are often partnerships. There's often government approvals because, again, ambiguous legal standing. And... Um, and a whole bunch of things conspire. Um, you, you've got a moving target because you're not actually going to launch this thing for five years, seven years. Um, of course, the markets keep moving. Technologies keep moving. You have to figure out whether you want to incorporate the new technology. Um, and so examples of this, uh, Jibo was a good example. It was a cascading miracles. Iridium, if you remember, satellite phones, um, $6 billion loss, um, satellite phone service anywhere on the planet. Um, Segway was uh, that that kind of business. Um, Silicon Valley veterans will remember GoCorp, which was uh, pen and tablet computing back in the 80s, uh, early 90s. Um, and the case we use, SpaceX and Tesla, are, are probably examples of this working. You know, um, flipped flipped heads uh, many times in a row, at least so far. Um, but the the case I use in the book is Better Place Project, Better Place, which was um, uh, $900 million spent and lost on, a, on an effort to um, create a network of charging stations for electric vehicles. Um, launched in 2007, um, went out of business in 2013. And so, um, so the, there's a tendency to overestimate demand. If you saw the original projections for Iridium or Segway, what they thought they were going to sell. And um, you know, because of the delays, you eventually cut some corners with the product. Um, the costs, because of the delays and partners not um, carrying their end, uh, costs escalate. And, and so ultimately, when you launch, uh, it's disappointing, as it was for Jibo, as it was for Segway, as it was for Iridium, um, over and over again. And um, these things, um, when they go down, it's hundreds of millions of dollars lost. Um, and for them to have worked, they would have had to have a series of cascading miracles for That's them to right. work. And exactly when right. people were investing in them, there was either a reality distortion field or there was some sort of metrics early on that allowed the investors to pour another, let's say, 800 million into a better place 
thinking that a lot of the risk had been taken out, thinking that that the miracles had already happened in the past, and now we just needed to scale. Yeah, yeah. And uh, um, reality distortion field, Shai Gassi was the entrepreneur behind Better Place, um, positively Jobsian in his ability to, to um, dazzle an audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, with Segway, Dean came in, same thing, you know, really yeah. a riveting um, um, inspiring presenter. The Segway was backed by uh, John Doerr of, of Kleiner Perkins. Um, uh, Steve Jobs himself wanted to put $50 million in and, and uh, Dean Kamen um, wasn't comfortable with the amount of control that Jobs might want. Uh, mm-hmm. Bezos wanted to invest. Um, so yeah, as, as some of these ventures get going in, in boom times, sort of the, um, the height of a bubble, um, but not all of them. Hmm. No, and and it's interesting because the the positive side of someone with a reality distortion field is that every company has financing risk, and if this person through their personality is really good at fine at fundraising, then you as an investor think, yeah, they'll attract more capital and we'll get more and more at bats at this. Yeah, exactly, and and the financing risk is particularly acute because the the development cycle is so long. You know, if if, um, if you're doing a better place, essentially, it was a clean tech startup, right? Started in 2007 and uh, launched in Israel in in um, in 2012, and um, so so you got to live with five years of financing risk. And we went from boom time for clean tech investing to basically people um, deserting the sector. Sure, sure. And this was one of three failure modes you're seeing in. Yep. Um, in later stages, this cascading miracles. And what are the other two? Uh, the uh, one of the others, I think, is a, we've been talking about financing risk. I I, I call the uh, all of the failure patterns have names. So the name for this one is uh, help wanted, and it's basically um, a, a late stage venture that still has product market fit. Um, the the um, customers love the product. The, the basic formula in terms of LTV CAC is is um, on track. Um, but something on the resource front goes awry. Um, and um, it might be a mistake made, um, or it might just be, um, by the way, that's one of, with failure in general, you've got to decide, um, are you only going to label a thing a failure if mistakes um, were made by the management team? Um, sometimes it's misfortune, right? We're in the middle of a pandemic, and a lot of startups will fail, um, not due to any fault, um, any, any bad decisions by the entrepreneurs. So um, Dot and Bow is the example in this chapter of, of um, it's a, a um, online retailer of, of furni- home furnishings. And um, uh, they really, um, the, the formula was working. The demand side was very strong, um, but two things went wrong. Um, one, they got hit by, you'll remember this well, James, sort of circa 2013, 14, big downdraft in spending on e-commerce. Um, mm. Uh, you know, probably a 50% decline across the board. And even in a downdraft like that, financing risk like that, even healthy companies can't raise more money. And so just as... Um, Dotton when was when you mean the asked, downdraft, you're talking about the downdraft from investors. Yeah, exactly. Not, not from buyers, but yeah, not, exactly. not from consumers, but from yeah, investors. The, 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 it just became, uh, e-commerce fell out of favor. It did. And, uh, and stayed yeah. out of favor for long enough that if you had just stepped on the accelerator... Um, as, as you were heading into that period of financing risk, you were in big trouble. And um, it turned out Dot and Bo's demand model relied heavily on virality and, and social media. And, and uh, it can be harder to turn that off um, than, than the kind of customer acquisition that relies on paid marketing. So, um, so that was one misfortune, um, really. Um, I, mean, I, I suppose you can always ask questions about whether management should plan for something like that, whether they could see it coming. But the other problem they had was um, uh, shipping couches across the country is logistically and operationally intensive, like um, nothing you've ever seen except maybe like apparel manufacturing. Um, And uh, it took them the longest time to figure out how to do that and how to do it efficiently and effectively. And essentially, they went through three vice presidents of operations before they found somebody that could get the the logistics and operations and, and shipping under control. And in the meantime, so they had strong demand, but they had poor margins because they were expediting things because 
Uh, people were canceling orders because there were all sorts of queries to customer service. And um, uh, Anthony Suhu, um, the entrepreneur, um, I, th I think would say made a mistake in these in these hiring moves. Uh, first person he hired, he, he wanted because he knew he had these um, operationally intensive demands. He wanted a generalist, a chief operating officer type, and hired somebody who was good at that, but had never really had um, e-commerce experience of shipping heavy things. Um, Second person had more of that, but had the kind of big company background we were talking about a little while ago um, and, and didn't work out. Finally nailed it the third time, but by that point, he burned through a lot of capital um, and then he hit the financing risk. Got it. Got it. Yeah, it's an incomplete team. Exactly. Missing manager. One single um, in a really decisive senior role, uh, having the wrong person in there. Um, right. So help right. wanted. Yeah, so so often as I sit there with the founders, I I finally conclude. I lean back and I say, "Well, we have a recruiting problem, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> right? We're missing yep. someone." And um, and I think it takes three months, six months to fill a position like that, you, you know. And then you bring somebody on, and it's three months or six months before you figure out whether it's working. So yeah, and it's easy to so lose year. It's Twelve months of burn. Yeah, exactly. Because you're missing one person. Right. And if you've gotten everybody else in place then that, that just increases your burn every day. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and that's what happened. And then the third pattern, um, I, I call it speed trap. Um, I talked a little bit about fab.com a minute ago. That's the case there. Um, we can blame this one on the venture capitalists, um, although um, entrepreneurs can be complicit. So um, uh, early momentum, um, VCs buy into a company that's growing fast at a high share price and expect more of the same. Um, entrepreneur loves that, um, who doesn't want to grow the thing. Um, and um, uh, it, it's, um, so you, you step on the gas. The customers that arrive later just aren't nearly as attractive as the ones who came in the beginning. Um, if you're at all operationally intensive, if it's just a pure software business, it's a little more forgiving. But if you've got to um, operate warehouses and um, call centers and so forth, you're now hiring legions of employees that you've got to train. You've got to layer in middle managers. You've got to create processes and so forth. And so you're going um, fast as you can. You've got um, often chaos operationally you've got problems culturally because you have old guard new guard conflict um the uh the the um, new guard is jealous of the of the option gains that the that the old guard is sitting on the old guard looks at these new people who don't understand the mission who just sort of see this as a job uh, the new guard are specialists and they think their skills aren't appreciated the old guard are generalists and um, their jobs increasingly are like, what, what do we do with Fred? Um, you know, he's, good at, he's, a, he's pretty good at a lot of things, but he can't run performance marketing. Um, he can't run the warehouse. He can't run the call center. Um, and, and so, so you have all sorts of problems. And, um, and, you know, and then, of course, the right answer is to slow down and fix things, but you got a lot of pressure to keep going. And, and that's where the speed trap comes. So I want to switch gears and talk about startup success and network effects because it, obviously at NFX stands for network effects. We believe that network effects are the strongest durable competitive advantage. And we see a strong correlation between network effects and success. And, you know, over, over the last few years, we've done this research project where we've noted that 70% of the market cap in the tech industry comes from the 30% of companies with network effects at their core. So that underlies our thesis about how we invest. And you have been such a masterful contributor to the overall thinking about network effects over the last decade or more. Um, and so it's always great to, to sit down and talk with you about this. And are you still teaching network effects to your HBS students? Um, do you mean me or my colleagues? You and your colleagues. Um, I don't do it much anymore. Um, two years ago, I teamed up. I know you've met my colleague, Scott Commoners. Um, yes absolutely brilliant economist who's an expert on market design, marketplace design, protege of Nobel Prize winner. Um, uh, and um, I helped him launch a course on marketplace design. So that was really the first time I've been back at it. Um, and of course, um, in any kind of marketplace, the network effects loom large. Um, so that's the first time I've done it in years. 
and I'm rusty. <laughs> so. Oh, that's that's. But, my, but but it's all over our curriculum at Harvard Business School. Um, it, it is. I would say half of the first the required first year courses, the entrepreneurship course, the technology and operations course, marketing strategy, all of these courses uh, teach some aspect of it, and and plenty of the second year electives. Interesting, interesting. You know, for mo- most people in the world, don't get to go to HBS and. And I was super lucky to get in and, and enjoyed my time there. And and so for those people who are listening who who have who don't get to go, just knowing that you guys spend a lot of time studying it, I think is helpful to know. That if if they were going there and spending two years and spending their hundred and forty or whatever it is, thousand dollars to <laughs> That's the number. To get the to get the education, that they would be studying a lot about network effects. And so uh, that's that's certainly certainly having the syllabus is sort of half half the battle. So that's yep. good. Well you guys and, have done a great uh, you, you, your website is the syllabus now. So um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate that. I, you know, so what do you think people are frequently getting wrong about network effects? Uh, Less than in the past, but still a lot. Um, The um, just the definition even still, um, I know you're sensitive to this. Um, There's a lot of, a a lot of people will um, point to virality and, um, assume there's a network effect at work. Sometimes there is, um, but if it's just a word of mouth referral, that's not a network effect. Um, that's word of mouth referral. And, and, um, and the other place where it gets confusing, and I think people, um, even experts on network effects, um, can have a, a reasonable debate about this, is a situation where density of the network, to sheer traffic, scale of some sort, makes the product more valuable. And I, I tend to reserve network effect for when the users of the network are actually interacting with each other, usually through a platform. <coughs> and um, if there's no interaction, uh, I don't consider it a network effect. It is a scale economy, you know, so um, you get into businesses like um, dockless bike sharing, um, you know, where um, the, the company buys a whole bunch of bikes and the more bikes there are, um, the more comfortable you are as a user going to be that there'll be a bike in the right place at the right time. It's not really a network effect. Um, uh, and uh, Google in some ways is the same way, right? Um, that they, um, with a huge amount of search traffic, they can draw better inferences about what the best um, listings are to serve up to you. Um, so the product gets more valuable, the more people use it, but they're not really interacting with each other through, through the product. So those definitions are an issue. Um, there's, um, there's, I, I think, um, it's easy for founders to wave their hands and say they're going to harness network effects without really understanding how strong they are. Um, and, and we see, I still see a lot of mistakes sort of assuming that network effects are stronger than they are. Well, Tom, it is a real pleasure to hear your voice and to talk with you about these things. And when is the book coming out? Uh, the book, um, I'm writing the conclusion right now. Um, as you might guess, it takes a long time um, to go from there to a printed book on the bookshelves. So um, I think the target date is March or April, um, essentially 10 months from now. Got it. And the name of the book will be? Why Startups Fail. I can't wait to read the whole thing. Tom, thank thank you. you so much. Yeah, thanks, James. Thank you.